I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about human rights and what is happening on the ground in Afghanistan now, we have with us Marty Flax, who is the new director of the Human Rights Program at CSIS. Marty, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Andrew, for having me. Now, Marty, you know, I don't want to like, you know, get into this too much, but we could be talking about all things Cleveland here because, of course, you're from Cleveland and my wife's from Cleveland and we could get into all that, but we'll probably have to spare our listeners because, of course, you are a distinguished former government official, you served on the National Security Council, you were in the State Department, et cetera, et cetera. And we're really here not to talk about how much Cleveland rocks, but we're here to talk about the Taliban. Yeah, all roads do lead back to Cleveland somehow. And two Clevelanders can spend an infinite amount of time talking about that city and our sports teams, among other things. But yes, I think we should probably focus on the news of the day, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. So Let me just start by asking, you know, critics are calling the withdrawal a foreign policy failure, but others argue that for successive presidential administrations, you know, there's enough blame to go around for where we are today and that no administration could have avoided this messy end to the war and that President Biden is, you know, dealing with it if imperfectly. But putting aside political infighting, tell us, you know, what do you think is going on right now on the ground with regard to human rights. What are we seeing from the Taliban in terms of initial signals on their posture towards human rights? Is this a a different Taliban than we've dealt with in the past? Yeah, it's a great question. So in terms of what's happening right now, the formal evacuation obviously ended. But in terms of evacuees and those needing to leave, we still know there are thousands of Afghans who worked with the United States or in support of our efforts in, in Afghanistan who couldn't make it out by the deadline. And those individuals are now searching for alternative ways out, whether that's via the airport when it reopens in the coming days or via land borders. And, you know, we still don't have really clear figures in terms of how many Afghans we did manage to evacuate or how many more might be eligible for resettlement in the United States who remain behind in Afghanistan. And so that first priority in terms of human rights for the coming days and maybe coming weeks still has to be how we protect and and take care of those whose lives are on the line because of their work with the United States. And I think that's an ongoing priority for us and should be an ongoing priority for the U.S. government. Beyond that, you know, we do have to think about increasingly the long-term unfolding of a, a very challenging, troubling human rights situation on the ground in Afghanistan. We are seeing some of those fears unfold. We're seeing reports of door-to-door searches for targets, whether those are people affiliated with the United States or people who are known for political activism or human rights activism. We're seeing assassinations and threats of assassinations, attacks on journalists, recruitment of child soldiers, and of course, widespread threats against women's rights, including this blanket call we saw a week ago for women to stay home. To answer your question about whether this is a different Taliban, I think we've seen very little evidence of that. You know, what we have seen is maybe some greater awareness by the Taliban of how they're perceived internationally and maybe a greater interest by them in influencing how they're perceived. So the extent to which they're saying things like they will allow women to continue to work, we know they're telling us what 
we want to hear. They're not intrinsically oriented differently in terms of women's rights and human rights, but maybe they're a little bit more sophisticated than they were in terms of knowing what the international community wants to hear. And I think that does present us maybe with a small opening for us to take advantage of in terms of our engagement on human rights issues going forward. How bad is this version of the Taliban? Like, what can we expect from them? Are they as nasty as the last group that was in charge over there in Afghanistan? I don't think the Taliban has fundamentally changed its views. And so I think there is the possibility that we will see exactly the same attitudes and exactly the same attempts at restrictions that we saw 20 years ago. But we live in a different world. And I think there are opportunities today for leverage and transparency that maybe we didn't have then. And so the extent to which we can constrain the Taliban from carrying out its sort of worst instincts, it will depend to the the extent to which we continue to focus on this issue, to shed light on it, to put pressure on them. I think they have shown in the last few weeks to be responsive to international perceptions. There's things they need from us. And as long as that exists, I think there is an opening. But I think the answer to how bad it will be is, is directly related to how involved the international community is and on an ongoing basis in the situation in Afghanistan. So what, what is the leverage that we have now that we pulled out both militarily and diplomatically? Do we have any leverage or influence over how they treat their population? I think we have some leverage. I think we have a few things that we know that they need from the international community. First and foremost it is financing. They are inheriting a, a government that was 80% dependent on international donor support. Those sources of funds have dried up in the last few weeks. The U.S. Is, has frozen the Afghan Central Bank Reserve held, funds held at the Central Federal Reserve Bank in the United States. The World Bank and IMF have frozen financial transfers that would have gone to the Afghan government. And obviously other international donors have frozen you know, foreign aid that would have gone in. So we know that they need money to run a government and the extent to which we control those purse strings at the moment is a, is a point of leverage. We also know they want international recognition. They want their government to be recognized as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. And that's something that should not be given away easily and should not come without a track record of actually building an inclusive government and one that is governing more responsibly. We also have some, you know, some sticks on the other on the other side. We have the op- opportunity or the option to expand sanctions. The sanctions that we have now are really targeted at the Taliban as a terrorist group, but there are additional restrictions and, and visa bans and other things we can put in place to continue to keep pressure on them in the form of sanctions. So I think we do have points of leverage, and I think we need to be very strategic about how we use that leverage because it's it's not unlimited. And some of those things are, I think, watching very closely what government that this Taliban forms. Is there any effort to build any kind of inclusive government as they've committed to do uh, is it representative in any way of Afghans? Does it include women? And, and how does it govern? And that's something that's going to take some time to evaluate. And then the other piece that I think is really important is, you know, we've just pulled out all of the foreign embassies, diplomats, international journalists, international human rights organizations, most humanitarians. So how do we ensure continued transparency and documentation of what's actually happening on the ground in Afghanistan? Does the Taliban create a permissive environment for human rights monitoring, reporting, documentation, 
And, you know, what mechanisms do we have in place to ensure that that happens? Both domestically, can institutions like an Afghan National Human Rights Commission continue to function and, and report freely? Will they welcome the appointment of a UN special rapporteur or other international representative to monitor that situation and let that person into the country? Will they let human rights organizations and international journalists back in to report? I think that's another really critical piece of the of how we deploy our leverage most effectively in order to, to constrain their behavior on human rights. I want to talk about women in Afghanistan in a minute, because that's obviously a crucial piece of this. But while we're on the subject of leverage, how do we actually interact with them if we don't have a diplomatic presence there in Afghanistan anymore? What is the mechanism for us to actually work with them and try to you know, get from them what we want in terms of their behavior and in terms of our ability to have them work with us in partnership on terrorism and other issues. I mean, we know that our adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, are all going to be on the ground there, but we're not. So what does that do to us? It's going to be a very interesting situation. I think it sounds like we're going to operate an embassy uh, mission out of Doha for the time being. So we'll have representatives in the region, but not in country. And in many countries where we don't have a diplomatic presence, we nominate another embassy to sort of uh, represent our interests on our behalf. And I don't know yet if we'll do that in Afghanistan, but we do sometimes work through third countries, particularly to deal with issues surrounding U.S. citizens and things like that. So, you know, I think we do have those opportunities to continue to engage. Hopefully the situation will stabilize security-wise to the point where U.S. officials can go back into Afghanistan for visits for short periods of time. And there are also international fora. There are, you know, there are a lot of third parties and international fora that, that we can use, for example, if there is a, a UN process that's put in place to focus on human rights. We have the opportunity to work through some of those mechanisms to get our messages through. And I think one of the things that's really important about the way forward on human rights in Afghanistan is that it it needs to be a collective effort. It can't be the United States pushing an agenda by itself. We really need a strong international consensus around our expectations. And to the fullest extent possible, that really needs to include countries like China and Russia, who, as you said, will be on the ground and will have tremendous influence over the situation in, in Afghanistan if they choose to. So the UN Security Council did pass a resolution this week that called for respect for human rights. China and Russia abstained from that resolution, which is certainly better than vetoing it. So there may be some room there to, you know, to use international mechanisms to to kind of get some kind of consensus around these issues. And I think that's going to be really important. What more do you think the United States and or the international community can do, if not directly, then indirectly for the women of Afghanistan? I think here we have to think a bit creatively and really try to leverage the progress that has been made and, you know, the, the generation of men and women who've grown up since the Taliban was last in place. So just for example, one of the things that's changed most dramatically in the last 20 years since the Taliban last ruled Afghanistan is, is access to technology. So we now have cell phone coverage is fairly ubiquitous now in Afghanistan, which it was not in the 90s. Internet access is available in many places, not everywhere, and not all Afghans are on the internet, but 
in large cities, many people are now online. And this you know, creates some interesting opportunities. One, to document human rights abuses and to get information out to the world as it's happening. And we've seen that in many countries around the world, that people with smartphones have incredible power to document and spread the word about what's happening on the ground. Two, it allows civil society organizations, women's organizations, human rights groups to continue to communicate and organize and share information and, and protection and continue to grow their capacity, potentially in a less risky way by doing so online. And then third, and to your point about women in particular, if we do see a situation where the Taliban puts back in place these very severe restrictions on women and girls in terms of education uh, and work, there are more options now than there were 20 years ago for online education, for online working, for online banking, things that can allow people to still live their lives a little more easily in these very restrictive environments. And in a totally different context, we've learned a lot from COVID and lockdowns on how to work and live online. But that's very, very difficult to do without the right tools and resources. And that's another thing we learned the hard way in the United States is that if you're not internet connected, if you don't have the right equipment, you fall behind in the in the online space. And so I think there's an opportunity to think creatively about how we can really help push for better connectivity, get equipment and, and internet access out to those vulnerable groups and to do so in a way that is safe and secure. And Because none of this will work if one, the Taliban doesn't keep cell towers and internet networks open and doesn't shut them down. And two, that they can't track and target people based on online activity. And we've seen that already happen a little bit with the Taliban using platforms like Facebook to track people's networks and see mm -hmm. who's connected to Americans or U.S. government officials or things like that. And so, you know, I think we really need to double down on Internet security, on pr online privacy on helping civil society organizations and women's groups in Afghanistan who are online, who want to continue to do this really important work and maybe expand that to do so safely and really get ahead of this problem before we have a, a situation where that creates additional vulnerabilities rather than additional opportunities. So what strategic lessons in terms of human rights should the United States be looking to learn from in this situation you know, 20 years of progress, as you pointed out, followed by this regression that's at hand for Afghanistan's women. Yeah, I think time will tell a little bit what the long-term lessons are going to be here. But the one that comes to mind right now is just how closely the human rights agenda has to be tied to the broader socioeconomic and political agenda that we have in a country that, and one that makes sense in a local context. So there's been a lot of debate about how much we have tried to impose our values on Afghan population that wasn't interested in them. And to me, I don't think it's a problem of imposing our values. I do think we sometimes try and impose our, our systems of executing those values or achieving those values on people who maybe have different approaches to achieving those same objectives. And that's not helpful. But, you know, the median age of Afghans is is under 20 years old. So half of Afghans were not born the last time the Taliban was in power. And we know that from surveys that Afghans overwhelmingly say they support democracy, they support women's rights, they've had 20 years of relative freedom, and many don't want to give that up. The Asia Foundation does a, a survey every year of, of Afghans, and the most recent one in 2019 found that 
89% of the Afghan population supported negotiations with the Taliban, but they feel so strongly on women's rights that that 65 and 66% respectively said they were not willing to sacrifice a women's education or women's working outside the home to get a political deal. So it's not just that they support women's rights in principle, they're, they're not willing to sacrifice those rights just for a peace deal. These values are important to them. We're not trying to impose values that a majority of the population doesn't support. But at the same time, if a government doesn't work for a population, it can't survive. And, and with that government will go human rights protection. So if you've got 75% of respondents in that same survey saying they sometimes or often fear for their personal safety, then their government isn't working for them. 63% of them said they fear voting and 75% said they're afraid to protest. Those are fundamental components of democracy that aren't working, weren't working in Afghanistan. The democracy that, that they had was not delivering results. And on the socioeconomic front, we have the same challenge. When the, the number one complaint that respondents said in their local area was that they don't have utilities or public services, right? So we need to match our kind of rhetoric and our push on human rights principles with real support to tackle these underlying issues. So the governments who are promoting democracy and human rights are actually delivering on the promise of democracy in a really concrete way so that the population feels the benefits of that in terms of security, in terms of political rights, and in terms of, of socioeconomic rights as well. Now, of course, you know, this day and age, the United States and China are on a continuous collision course and a continuous competition. Do you see the U.S. and China on a collision course over Afghanistan? I don't think they're going to be on a collision course. I think there is a risk that Chinese influence is counterproductive in Afghanistan. There's a number of things that China can do to undermine the efforts we were just talking about to constrain the Taliban's actions on, on human rights. One is financial. We were just talking about the financial strings that, that we leverage that we have over the Taliban. Obviously, the Chinese government can step in with their own funding and change that calculation very significantly. The same with political recognition, if they could choose to to recognize the Taliban government, that's something that I think would be very meaningful if they did so. They can also do more subtle things like exporting the, the sort of surveillance technology and online digital surveillance that we were talking about earlier that they're known for deploying domestically and that we know they export to governments in Venezuela and Zimbabwe and elsewhere to help facilitate the Taliban's repression. And that's something that I'm very worried about. So there's certainly a chance that China plays a very counterproductive role in Afghanistan. But I think the verdict is out in terms of how much of a priority the Chinese want to make Afghanistan. We know that they're concerned about this perception of terrorism, of radical Islamists from Xinjiang who are in or moving in and out of Afghanistan, whether that's real or perceived. But we don't necessarily see them wanting to make a, a huge investment in a country that, by all accounts, has been a difficult one in terms of influencing high world powers. And so I think we don't know yet how much we will be on a collision course, but I think there's certainly some things we need to keep a close eye on and the extent to which we can work with the Chinese up front to come to some kind of agreement about what our mutual priorities can be. I think we do have a mutual interest in instability and counterterrorism in Afghanistan at a bare minimum that could provide a launching pad for, for some kind of cooperation. 
So let me get this straight. You think that China may export the surveillance technology that they use with the Uyghurs and others in mainland China to Afghanistan so the Taliban can use that on their population to control their people? I'm very concerned about that because I think it's something that could be in the Chinese interests in terms of wanting to keep an eye on the, the perceived radical Uyghurs that, that may be in Afghanistan. And so they have an interest themselves in extremism and keeping an eye on things in Afghanistan. But, you know, we also have seen them deploy that technology as a way to curry favor with governments and in a way to build relationships with governments. And so it's something the Taliban, I think, could find very valuable. They're not perceived as a particularly sophisticated group technologically, but I think that that's changing. And to the question of, is this a new Taliban? I think that's one of the ways that they are changing. We see we see the Taliban spokesman on Twitter. As I said earlier, we see them looking at Facebook for evidence of, of people's interactions. And so it could create a really dangerous opportunity to radically increase their power to surveil and control their population if that collaboration were to happen. What does the United States do to counter those trends if we see evidence of that? I think there's a few things that we can do. So one is that, you know, we have taken a number of steps with respect to Xinjiang in terms of trying to make sure that U.S. generated technology, U.S. built technology doesn't get incorporated into those products. So we have a number of commerce department findings or or rulings that restrict the ability of U.S companies to export this technology to China or to Chinese companies. And I think we need to really keep a close eye on whether that list is expansive enough and covers the folks who may could potentially export this to China as well. And I think that we need to be sort of upfront and clear about our concern and, and proactively track it. And it's just something that we need to be paying attention to so that we know if it does happen. There's also ways that we should be working with civil society groups in Afghanistan and elsewhere to prepare for some level of digital surveillance, because we know that any government is going to be interested in what's happening online by civil society groups. But there are ways that civil society groups can protect themselves online. And I think we need to really proactively work with those groups to put those protections in place. Marty, I have to ask you, along the lines of digital surveillance, there was some equipment the United States left behind that involved the biometric data of Afghans. And it could prove to be really scary in the long run. Of course, the Taliban doesn't know how to use this technology yet, but others do and could teach them. What could it lead to and how could it be problematic for Afghans going forward under Taliban rule? Yeah, I think it's a really unfortunate situation if these reports are accurate that the military left behind equipment that basically collected the biometric information of Afghans who interacted with the U.S. government in some way, whether visiting a military base or the embassy, and that this is technology that the Taliban now controls. What we understand is that they maybe cannot crack into this themselves, but that the Pakistanis have the ability to do so, that Chinese obviously would be able to do so. So it may only be a matter of time before they have access to a database like that. And it's potentially the tip of the iceberg in terms of the Taliban's ability to to track its population digitally. So it's really a, a, a scary opportunity for the Taliban to really have almost a hit list of people that it can target who interacted with the U.S. government and the beginning of maybe a, a broader digital surveillance system that the 
Taliban may want to de deploy in terms of its population, whether that's deploying facial recognition technology on the streets or whether that's going online and tracking online activity by civil society, by women, by opposition politicians and things like that. So the, the digital Taliban is really a very scary version of the Taliban. And what other things can the digital Taliban do with this kind of ability? Well, I think they can do things like monitor activity online. So folks who are trying to organize, trying to get education, trying to grow their capacity to understand, you know, strategies for pushing back on the Taliban in terms of their political agenda. They have the ability to really target those individuals. And we've seen that in other countries with governments who deploy technology to hack into even secure WhatsApp communications by journalists, by civil society organizations, and then use that information to actually target those journalists or those civil society activists for arrest or even worse. So there's, there's really some terrifying possibilities of what the Taliban could do if they had access to that kind of technology and the intent to really crack down on, on human rights and democracy activists. Marty, finally, this has been fascinating discussion, and thank you for your insight on this. But I, I want to finally ask you, what does the Taliban's takeover mean for the Biden administration's human rights agenda, and especially in the context of rallying democratic states together? Absolutely. So we're on the cusp of organizing a, a democracy summit this December, where human rights, among other things, is going to be a huge focus. And, and the Biden administration has really stressed that it will put democracy and human rights at the center of its foreign policy. And that's very hard to reconcile with what's happening in Afghanistan right now. And, and in, so in that sense, the administration has some credibility to build back on democracy and human rights. I don't think it's impossible to do so, but I think it's going to take really concerted action in the coming months to do that. I think the international human rights community, our partners on democracy and human rights around the world are watching what's happening in Afghanistan with great interest, first and foremost, in terms of what's happening with our partners on the ground. And are we taking every possible action to protect them? I think we we got a lot of people out in the last few weeks, and that has helped us dig us ourselves out of that hole a little bit. But what happens in the next few weeks to get the remainder of folks at risk out will be very closely watched by the rest of the world. And then more broadly, I think the extent to which we continue to shine a spotlight on Afghanistan and don't sort of wash our hands of it and walk away and move on to the next crisis, but really acknowledge the fact that we have a potential human rights catastrophe on our hands and that we're going to do our best to address it, I think is going to be really meaningful because I don't think that most people around the world expected the United States to be in Afghanistan forever. And I don't know that most people feel like the Taliban taking over is the U.S. fault, so to speak. But I think they will think it's our fault if we let that happen and then we walk away and ignore that situation. And so continuing to really focus on this issue and not let ourselves be exhausted by the last few weeks is going to be really important. And then there's a broader democracy and human rights agenda that needs to flow from this. And it needs to be proactive one that really captures both the risks to democracy from our established and, and fragile democracies, as well as these really egregious cases of abuse, if we're going to have any credibility on this issue. We still lack a lot of key appointments in the U.S. government on human rights issues. So Congress can help by confirming our Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor nominee. But the administration has not appointed folks to key 
positions in the State Department on trafficking in persons, on women's rights, on war crimes, people who can help sort of ring that bell and continue to draw attention to these issues are not in place. And then we have this opportunity at the Democracy Summit to really build a coalition of countries that is broad, that is inclusive of democracies all around the world and civil society groups all around the world, even from countries whose governments might not be invited to the summit, but who are fighting for democracy and human rights and who need a boost. And I think if we come to that summit both with humility, acknowledging that both here in the United States and in our foreign policy, we are not perfect and we are still learning and democracy is is not perfect and we're figuring it out along with everybody else, but also with a really robust commitment to a proactive agenda that we're willing to put our money and our effort and our time where our mouth is on this. I think we'll be able to build back some of that confidence. But I think what happens in the next three or four months on this issue is really going to define the the human rights and democracy agenda for the Biden administration. There's certainly been exhaustion surrounding Afghanistan, given our last 20 years experience there. Are you really worried that there's exhaustion over these last three weeks and going forward, what that's going to mean? I am worried. I And, you know, I can understand how an administration that has had to deal with this crisis would want to declare victory and walk away. And I think that that's really dangerous. And I think that there's also a, you know, a natural tendency in the U.S. government to have to be the one left holding the bag on a really difficult situation. And no matter how the last three weeks have gone, Afghanistan post-U.S. pullout was always going to be a very, very difficult situation, both in terms of human rights and counterterrorism and many other issues. It's not an easy problem under any circumstances. And so, you know, it's it's hard for anyone to want to take ownership of that. But I think it's really important that the Biden administration really clearly identify who is going to do the follow-up in Afghanistan, who's responsible both for the massive resettlement effort that we now have and taking care of the tens of thousands of people that we pulled out and who we are now literally responsible for day-to-day for their survival, as well as the ongoing human rights and uh, overall situation in Afghanistan. Marty Flax, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter on these extremely complex issues Thank you for your insight and for all this information. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 